We're picking up in Leviticus chapter 4, and Pastor Frank Jr. left off with verse 12. I'm picking up with verse 13. But let's pray first. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and how thankful we are for your Holy Spirit, not only for the forgiveness of sin, not only for the renewal of our spirit, but also for the fact that your Holy Spirit is a continuous cleansing process in our heart and in our lives. And Lord, we're thankful for the fact that even though we might fall to sin again and again, that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we come before you this morning, laying our, heart, laying our hearts bare before you, asking that your Holy Spirit, through your word, would speak to us those things that we need to hear, those things that we need to learn. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, one of the things we have to understand is that we're living in the last days. Scripture makes it very clear. In fact, I'm going to be sharing a verse from Isaiah that literally, literally was written concerning the last days. And as we get into this portion of Leviticus, Pastor Frank Jr. mentioned the fact in the first service that Leviticus chapter 4 actually deals with three areas of sin. First, it deals with the sin of the priest. In other words, the one who is leading the congregation. Then it deals, what I'm dealing with uh, in this portion, it deals with the sin of the whole congregation. And then lastly, we're going to be looking at the sin of the individual. And so we have to realize that Satan is always at work trying to deceive people and is trying to corrupt the church of Jesus Christ by bringing in all kinds of heresy. And one of the reasons that heresy and false teaching are able to come into the church is because either people don't know the Bible or they don't believe it. Both are necessary. We have to know what Scripture says and we have to believe that it's true. Sometimes one of the reasons that we have a hard time with Scripture is because there might be a particular area that we're dealing with over and over again, and we just don't want to deal with it any longer. So we say, well, that's not what it means. It's not really relevant to me. But the Word of God is always relevant. In Isaiah chapter uh, 5, verse 20, and this is the verse I was telling you about that talks about the last days. And it says, Woe to those who call evil good... And good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Because we have to understand that oftentimes when you have uh, just an accepted sin or a, an accepted false teaching or theology that comes into the church, it's because people want it to come into the church. They want to believe that way. They want to take good for evil and evil for good in the days we're living in. But the Bible is very clear that we have to stand on the Word of God alone. For instance, to call homosexuality a sin today would be a hate crime. But to call someone who believes what the Word of God says about the Bible, that makes them a homophobe, makes them homophobic. Well, phobia means an unwarranted fear, an unnecessary fear. Well, we're not homophobic. We don't fear anything. We're just trying to relate what the Bible says. And it's for the good of people. Because we realize, at least those of us as believers realize, as we're obedient to word of, of the Word of God, we find peace. We find a joy. We find a security in our heart that maybe we haven't known before. And, um, for instance... 
we have in the schools, I, I didn't substitute this year, but I have for many years prior, you have in the public schools, fornication is just taught as normal. Hey, there's nothing wrong with it. It's no big deal. Hey, uh, you know, this is what you have to do and not do. But if you dare to come out and say, well, what we really need to teach the young people is abstinence, that sexual relationship outside of marriage is a sin, that's anathema. You can't teach that in the schools. You're looked at in a negative way. And so when we look at these portions of Scripture that talk about calling good evil and evil good, it's happening before our eyes. For instance, we have this whole new push, you know, through uh, those that are, uh, you know, pro-death, pro-abortion, and they'll say, it's a woman's reproductive rights. Well, no one's, can, you know, saying that a woman doesn't have reproductive rights. It has nothing to do with that. You can reproduce. It's up to you. It's your choice. But the reality is we're talking about the killing of a baby. That's a very big difference. That's not reproductive choice. That's choice to end life. And so we're living in this day, we're living in this time in history that I think as believers we need to be more on fire for the Lord than ever. We need to know the Word of God and, and have it hidden in our heart more than ever. And I really believe that as a whole, it's just the opposite. I think the church has learned to accept many sins that they shouldn't, and they just kind of push away from really getting in and digging into the Word of God themselves. You know, we go to church on Sunday, the preacher's going to teach us. Do you remember years ago, some of us that have been saved for a long time, and you always had a, a notebook with your Bible? Because when you went through your Bible, you took notes and you wrote down cross-references. You really got into it. Why? Because you really believed it. You believed that what God was teaching us in His Word was for our benefit and was for our good. In fact, in Romans chapter 15 and verses 4 and 5, it says this. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I have hope through the Scriptures. I have hope through the Word of God. I have hope that the Word is going to show me what's right, is going to show me what's wrong. I have hope through the Word of God that if I confess my sin, I can be forgiven, I can be purified, and be back into right relationship with God. And most of all, I have hope that if I died, I'd go to be with the Lord with, without ever having an, not even a nanosecond of not being in relationship with Jesus Christ. When you die, there isn't some time period where you're kind of in limbo, walking through a, a tunnel and heading towards the light. That's contrary to the Word of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and the word in the Greek there is instantaneous. You die, you're with Jesus. And I have even another hope. Jesus is coming back for his church any day. And when Jesus comes back for his church... The trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are left and still alive shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? I mean, you talk about a hallelujah. I mean, it's going to be awesome. And, and I'll be singing in tune. I mean, I have, have no uh, hope of that right now. But one of the things, too, is we look at, at Scripture and the portion we're looking at when it talks about the sin of the congregation, I think it comes about because of ignorance. And 
you have to realize that Israel was surrounded, even at that time when they were in the wilderness, they were surrounded by pagan nations who had all kinds of pagan beliefs and, and, and all kinds of teachings. Some of them were very appealing to the flesh. Very appealing to the flesh. And so it was very possible that Israel would try to kind of juggle around the law, juggle around the, you know, the word of God in order to fit in some of these uh, sins that were all about them, that the pagans were practicing. Well, I kind of like this. I kind of like that. I think this is okay. I think that's okay. And therefore, as a congregation, as a group, they fell into sin of ignorance. The whole nation had sinned. This is why in 2 Timothy 2.15, here's what it tells us. Study. And if you look in your Bible at 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you know what the word study means? It doesn't mean just give a cursory reading of a portion of Scripture. It means to study. I remember when I was doing my undergraduate work, I had, if you, if you had a phobia, I had a phobia about not, not doing well in my finals. And so when my final exam, finals week, some of you who remember your undergraduate work, you remember what that was like. Finals week, I mean, all you did was study because you definitely didn't know enough. At least you thought you didn't know enough. And studied and studied. And I was so you know, over the top about it that I'd be studying until 4 o'clock in the morning when I had an 8 o'clock exam. And I remember when I was taking microbiology, and that was Amy's area. I mean, for me, I had to study. It was hard for me. But when I was uh, uh, studying for my microbiology final exam, um, I studied till 4 in the morning. I had an 8 o'clock exam. And I woke up with the alarm ringing. The alarm didn't wake me up. I woke up with the alarm ringing. And I looked at my, my clock, 8.30. Exam began at 8. I mean, I just threw clothes on. I didn't, you know, I don't even know if I brushed my teeth. I think I did, but I just threw clothes on, and I ran up to the campus. I ran up to the campus because I'd lost my driver's license for speeding. But anyway, I ran up to the campus, and I, you know, got there at 9 o'clock. The exam had been going on for an hour already, and the professor was there, and I said, you know, is, is it okay? I mean, can I? He goes, well, normally I wouldn't let a student in late. I explained the whole thing to him. He said, but the fact is, no one has left a room, so I know there's no chance you've been given any information. So you can come in, but you have to finish the normal time. That's what studying is. You really want to make sure you know something. That's how we're to study the Bible. Because what's in here, the words that are in here, Scripture says about itself, are words of life. These are words of life. And not just in the sense of physical life or spiritual life. I mean, it tells us how to live this life to where we'll find peace, where we'll find joy, and we'll find comfort of Scripture, as it tells us. This is why it also tells us in Acts 17.11, and some of you who wonder where our church got its name, Berean, Calvary Chapel, where does Berean come from? And uh, like one woman said to me, I heard about Berean, you know, weren't they uh, some, some cult and, and, you know, whatever, someplace. Here's where the word Berean comes from, Acts 17, 11. Now the Bereans 
were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, here you have the great apostle Paul who wrote one-third of the New Testament, and he's speaking to believers, and they didn't just take him at his word. They listened to what he had to say, and it says every day, daily, they went home and they checked him out with the Word of God. Does does this line up with the Word of God? That's what a Brian is. You just don't take things on face value or just because someone told you, you check it out. And the reason that we have what I might call congregational sin today is because so many do not check out what's being taught by the Word of God. They just accept it. This is some new phase going through the church. Hey, that's cool. That's awesome. I'm just going to embrace it without ever looking at the Word of God. And this is what was happening in the congregation of Israel. They weren't listening to the law of Moses. They weren't listening to what Moses was still alive and teaching and what their elders were teaching them. They were, you know, embracing some of these sins uh, uh, you know, with the pagan nations around them, we're teaching them. They were embracing some of these sins, and it led to this kind of congregational sin. So we're picking up in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13, and it says, Now if, now the word for if there in uh, the Hebrew is im. The word uh, for if there is im, and it means if, that, or when. So we could say now if, now that, or we could say now when, the whole congregation, and the word there for congregation is the day, which means family. It refers to a family, like we're a church family, the family of God. Um, of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from their eyes, uh, hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done um, something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. In other words, it's not saying they're not guilty. They are guilty. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, now all of a sudden they realize it, then the assembly shall offer a young bull bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders, not the individual, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord." The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meetings. Then the priest shall dip his fingers in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meetings. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offerings. That's just outside the door before you go into the holy place. Um which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do it with the bull as he did um, with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly." So the Lord anticipated the fact that there would be wholesale sin that would come into the assembly. He he anticipated that. And so he provided for a sacrifice for sin 
of ignorance. Not necessarily ignorance in the, in, the, in the sense they didn't know what they were doing, but they justified it as being okay. And now all of a sudden, you know, the Lord is saying to them, no, it's not okay. It is not a, a right uh, form of behavior. It is sin. And I believe often ignorance is based on people believing what they want to believe. You know what I'm saying? We say, well, I was just ignorant of that. Well, oftentimes we weren't really ignorant of it. We just wanted to believe it was okay to do this or believe it was okay to do that. And it's wrong. Sin is sin. And that's the sin that's being talked about that has to be, uh, you know, there has to be a blood sacrifice for. Now, um, for example, you have so-called Christian groups that will support homosexuality. They'll say there's nothing in Scripture that speaks against homosexuality, which is a lie. They'll say, oh, it's only Old Testament teaching. No, it's not. Jesus taught about it. The Apostle Paul taught about it. And the fact that homosexuality is considered a sin. Now, it's a sin no different than any other sin. You know, whatever sin you might be committing, it's sin. But homosexuality is a big political topic today and if you don't you know agree with uh, the fact that homosexuality is just a normal lifestyle then you're a homophobe which is incorrect where we as believers we just know that it's sin and it goes against god's word and uh, for instance uh, fornication and alcohol abuse oh these are okay they're just kind of accepted in the church now it's different now times are different no it's not and so often the problem, as I mentioned, is not so much ignorance of sin as it is being unwilling to repent of a particular sin. Now, some might ask, how can sin then be unintentional? Well, the answer to this question is just what we've been talking about. It's ignorance, either willful ignorance or literally didn't even know about it. And I was sharing with someone um, um, between services Years ago, and uh, in, in a church we were attending, I, I don't even think I was a pastor then, and I've been a pastor for 40 years, but uh, we were attending this church, and the church we attended, which was a great church, and they had a no-alcohol policy. In other words, in order to become a member of the church, you couldn't drink any alcohol. And um, so we had a baptismal service, and there was this one guy who was a brand-new believer, and uh, he got into the baptismal tank to be baptized, and the pastor said to him, is there anything you'd like to share with the people, any kind of testimony? He said, yes. He said, I thank the Lord, you know, for my salvation and so forth. And then he said, I just want to tell everyone, I was so nervous about coming to church today and being baptized that, man, I had a couple stiff belts, and it really relaxed me. Well, you know, a lot of the people in the congregation were like, Aah! you know, some laughed and that kind of, but the point I'm making, he didn't understand or didn't know what the policy of the church was. You see what I'm saying? That's the kind of ignorance that we can have that's just unknown. Now, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, it says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And so the point is, once again, we're being encouraged to go back to the Word of God that we might know what sin is. Now, here's the crazy thing in the church today. There are certain things that are sin that we say, it's really not sin. And there are other things in the church that we say is sin, and it's really not sin. You know what I mean? We go both, we go both ways. Oh, you can't do that. 
The reality is that the Word of God is clear. And the love that we're to have towards one another and towards the unbelieving world. You know, for instance, the Lord is so gracious in giving me opportunities at times to share with people, to share my faith with people. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm talking to an unbeliever, having great opportunity to share my faith. The Holy Spirit's really moving. And I'm talking to this person, and this person is saying, F this and F that and, and GD this. And, and, you know, and, and if I was like, ah, you know, be gone for me, you sinner, it would completely remove any opportunity for me to share the truth with them. And so you, you're around someone, they're of the world, they're talking like the world because they're still in the world, and so you're witnessing to them, you just accept it. Not as being right, but you just understand that's where they're coming from. And then as you have opportunity, you can open the door of salvation to them, and when that person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, all that goes by the wayside. And I've seen that in more than one occasion where a person had... A pretty bad mouth, and they get saved, and almost instantly it's changed. That's how God works. You know, uh, another example of uh, sin of ignorance. This happened years ago. There's some here from uh, Midler Ads that probably would remember this, but we had a, a young couple that started coming to our church, and they both got saved. And they really got saved. They were in love with Jesus. And they were students at SU, and they were living together. They, they were living together. And uh, in one of our evening services, I happened to be going through a portion of Scripture where it talked about the fact that fornication is sin. And they came to me after church, and they said, this, it says that in the Bible? So I showed them a number of Scriptures in the Bible that talks about fornication being sin. Our next Sunday evening service was their wedding. They repented. They recognized that what they were doing was wrong, and they, they said, we want to be married next Sunday evening. And I didn't say, well, you know, Sunday evening is when we do a teaching. You can't. I said, I said no problem. <laughs> we got it. And the whole congregation was just absolutely thrilled, you know, to have their wedding at the church. We put on a little reception for them downstairs. And uh, see, it's amazing what the Word of God can do. And so even if a person is caught in ignorance the Lord can turn it around and, and, and can work in them. You know, another example that I wanted to share is there was a pastor years ago, once again, and a youth pastor. And he wanted to be really relevant with his young people. And so he served communion using Pepsi and Fritos. No, he did. And um, it's one of those things where I know the intent of his heart was to just try to be relevant, you know, and so forth. But the reality is, God's word is very clear. As often as you drink of this cup, referring to the, to the cup of wine, the fruit of the vine, and eat of this bread, talking about the unleavened bread, the scripture is very clear. And so he did this out of ignorance. You know, he's trying to be relevant to the young people, but he was actually going contrary to what the Bible teaches because communion is a sacrament. We have the sacrament of baptism. We have the sacrament of communion. In order for something to be a sacrament of the church, it has to be something, number one, Jesus taught, and number two, he participated in. Jesus 
taught and participated in baptism, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you all to the end of the age. So baptism is something Jesus taught, and he was baptized by John the Baptist, remember? And there's communion. Jesus taught communion. He said, as often as you, you know, eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you do it in remembrance of me, you know, and he shared it with them at the table. Those are the two sacraments of the church. So a sacrament is something, something to be taken very seriously. You know, we don't have a baptismal service and say, hey, you want to do some backflips in there? You know, maybe we can, you know, have some pool toy, you know, uh, pool toys you can jump around. No, no. When you're baptized, there's a very specific way we do it. According to Romans 6, you go under the water. It indicates dying to your old nature. You come up out of the water. It's being raised to new life in Christ. And the same thing is true of communion. So this was a situation where you had a young youth pastor trying to be relevant, but he was getting into what I would call, you know, sin of ignorance. He didn't realize that he was really going against the, the sacredness of, of what the Bible teaches about communion. And, um, you know, one of the things that we have to understand is that there are so many things that have come into the church over the years. I mean, so many things that have led to what I would call congregational sin, where you had not only necessarily one local church, but many churches that just embraced it and hung on to it. And, um, but the reality is that if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's wrong. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's sin. Now, here's a few things in my 40 years in the ministry that I've dealt with, that we've gone through in, the, you know, coming into churches and going out of churches. Like, for instance, there was one that was called generational sin. This guy took a portion of Scripture, you know, he has visited the sin of the fathers down to the third and the fourth generation and so forth. And so they actually had a whole movement that was going through the church called, you know, the forgiveness of generational sin. And so you had to come in, and you had to be baptized not only for your own sin, but you had to be baptized for the sin of your parents and the sin of your grandparents and the sin of your great-great-grandparents in order to really... You see what I'm saying? They went right out of Scripture. They took one verse out of context, and they made a whole doctrine about it, and it just spread through many churches. And, of course, the church realized it was wrong. And uh, um, another one would be uh, the deliverance ministry. Now, Jesus Christ can deliver anyone from demon possession, but the fact is believers cannot be demon-possessed. Greater is he that is in you than he, he that is in the world. So a Christian can be oppressed by Satan. In other words, influenced, and we are. We're influenced by Satan in the world. But a Christian cannot be possessed. The Holy Spirit dwells within your cardia, your heart, your inner man. And you cannot have a demon dwell with the Spirit of Almighty God. You know, the light automatically repels the darkness. But you had a whole thing where some churches were... Now, you're going to think I'm crazy, but this happened right here in Syracuse. You had churches that behind the pews, they put throw-up bags like in airplanes because they believed that when you were, uh, you know, exercised of a demon, you'd throw up. And so you had people that had, were using these throat bags in a, in, in a church. Well, obviously, that turned out to be wrong. It's not according to Scripture. And it just 
went by the wayside. So these are the kinds of congregational sins or sins of, that can come into the church that they're accepting as being some great biblical thing, and it's not. And it's just like the remembrance of past sins. That's another thing that came in. The only way a person can really be forgiven, and the only way you can really be forgiven for any sin, is if you remember it. And so you would get together with friends or maybe get together with the pastor or others in the church and, and you'd sit down and you'd try to remember every sin you ever committed so you could repent of that particular sin and then you'd finally be forgiven. Well, here's the reality. There's no way any of us could remember all of our sins. <laughs> I mean, really, you know what I mean? I want to write down every sin, you know. Uh, I, uh, you know, give me the encyclopedia, you know. You, you couldn't do that. And these are the kinds of things that have come into the church, and the reality is they're outside of God's Word, and the church had to repent of. And I believe this is what is being talked about in this portion of Scripture. And why as believers we have to be so careful to watch and not allow every doctrine that comes around, every new movement, and just accept it and take it in you know, as if it is real. Because it's not. Now, the first thing the priest did after he performed the sacrifice for the congregation is, remember, he dipped his finger in the blood and he sprinkled it seven times before the Lord. In the sin of the priest, seven times the blood was sprinkled before the Lord. In the sin of the congregation, seven times the blood was sprinkled before the Lord. In the individual sin, seven times the blood was sprinkled before the Lord. Now, one of the things that we know is everything that was written in the past, I just read that scripture, was written for our learning, that through constant endurance of the scripture we might have hope. So everything that was written in the past had meaning. And all of us know that the Old Testament is all about the coming Messiah, and the New Testament is all about he came and this is what he taught us. And so when you read something in the Old Testament, you think to yourself, that has to have meaning. And when I was doing my study for this week, and I came across this portion of Scripture, and I'm thinking, what does that mean? You know, the, the priest sprinkled the blood seven times for the sin of the people. How does that relate to Jesus? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. And all of a sudden it hit me. If you really think about it, there were seven times that Jesus' blood was sprinkled, was released. First, when they beat him, and it says they flogged him, you know, unmercifully, his blood was shed. They put the thorn, crown of thorns in his head, and it says they hit him and beat him over and over again, and his blood was shed. That's the second time. His two hands and his two feet, that's six times. And then finally they stuck the spear in his side. Seven times his blood was sprinkled for our sin. Just as it tells us in the Old Testament. So when Scripture tells us what we read in the Old Testament is relevant to us today, that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it was. Because understand this. Jesus Christ is our blood sacrifice, right? He is the Lamb of God. And his altar, which was outside the camp, was the cross. That was his altar. And he was sacrificed on the altar of the cross for not his own sin, because he never sinned, but for our sin. He sacrificed for our sin. 
Now, as far as the rest of it is concerned, when it talks about the body being dissected and taken outside, that never happened to Jesus because the sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament, once they were sacrificed, that was it. They were dead and gone. But Jesus would rise from the dead. It was a very unusual thing. It was usually just like a mass grave or pit that they would put the bodies of criminals that were crucified. But remember Joseph of Arimathea came and said, plead it for his body. And they said, you can have it. And he took his body and laid it in a tomb. And those of you that have been to Israel with us, we've seen that tomb. We've been there. It's an amazing thing to understand what Jesus Christ went through. And he rose from the dead because of his love for us. Do you understand how much Jesus loves you? How much he loves you? How much he loves me? It's all an act of love. And yet, in order for that redemption to be secured for us, seven times his blood was sprinkled before the altar of God. There's not a sin you've committed that the blood of Jesus Christ has not forgiven. It's gone. But in the same sense, we have to realize that because of that costly sacrifice, let me just read a, a, a couple of scriptures to you. Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God's demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from wrath through him. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has, the, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son of love in whom we have been redeemed through the blood, the forgiveness of our sins. It was a blood sacrifice. And Jesus did it for no other reason that our sins might be forgiven. And we have to understand when he laid, you know, hung on that cross, there was a time that the sin of the entire world, sin past, sin present, and sin that would be in the future, was laid upon him. And that is the only time that Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, that's how the 22nd Psalm begins. The 22nd Psalm was a prophecy about the Messiah coming to earth and shedding his blood for our sin. Fulfilled. It's not a prophecy you read about that isn't fulfilled, that has not been fulfilled. And that's why they hung a sign over his head. They didn't even realize what they were doing. It's what we have in our welcome desk out there, to tell a story. It means paid in full. It's a legal term. Jesus Christ died on the cross that your sins would be paid in full. Paid in full. When you confess and repent of sin, it's over with. It's done. But the thing that we have to remember, according to this portion that we're studying as far as congregational sin, as far as individual sin is concerned, is we have to be willing to repent of our sin. We have to be willing to confess and repent of our sin. We are not living in a day, well, we're just living in a modern time where God kind of winks at certain sin. No, he does not wink at certain sin. 
Idolaters don't go to heaven. Fornicators don't go to heaven. Adulterers don't go to heaven. Liars don't go to heaven. Covetous do not go to heaven. That's what Scripture says. Shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so if we're really honest with ourselves, we need to understand, you know what? The Word of God is true, and if it points to some sin in my life, I'm going to confess and repent. Now understand that we, we call them the seven deadly sins. Those sins that are mentioned, and it says they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Greek, it's in the continuous present tense. What that means is that person's lifestyle. It doesn't mean you don't fall. A person never falls to any of these sins, because we do. I mean, how many of us haven't lied sometimes? You know, hey, how do I look? Oh, you look great. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> We, we all fall to, to, to different sin, but it's not our lifestyle. There's a difference between telling a lie and being a liar. Understand what I'm saying? And so we have to realize that the Word of God is given to us for our learning, not only that we'd have hope, but that we might see. I would not have known what sin was outside of the law. We just read that first this morning. And so we have to study the Word of God as being exactly what it is, the Word of God to man. But understand all of this. In the Old Testament, God's grace was there. But in the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's grace. And so everything that we have looked at, everything I'm talking about, it always has to be seasoned with the grace and mercy of God. His mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. And His grace gives us what we don't deserve. Heaven, eternal life, relationship with God. Do you understand as a believer, we don't take advantage of this. As a believer, you can go home, you can do it right now. You can kneel down and you can go before the throne of grace and literally have communion with your God. You don't need anyone to stand the gap. That's why... In the Christian church, we don't have priests. The word, the, a priest is someone who stands the gap between God and man. We have one priest, one high priest, Jesus Christ. He reached out to God, and he reached out to man on the cross. And he bridged that gap. We, there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. It's all we need. And every one of us can go before Jesus anytime we want as our priest, our high priest, and our mediator, and just be before the throne of God. There's so many things that the Lord has given us. Prayer, word, the, his word, fellowship, communion with him, the, the two sacraments that we share as, as a body. Oh, the gifts of God are beyond what we can imagine. And why don't we just receive them with such joy and gladness? You look at the book of, of Leviticus and you think, Wow, what a boring book. No, it's not. It's not. Does it seem boring? All you have to do is study it, and you're going to find the Lord will speak things to you that you never imagined. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony that we find in it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bring each one of us to that place where we would turn our back on the world and embrace your word and embrace your love. And, Father, that we would be your light everywhere we go, that people who would never read the Bible would be able to hear the gospel from our lips. I thank you, Father, 
for this body of believers. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning that do not know you, that they would quietly in their heart ask you to forgive their sins and to come into their lives, and they would leave this place a believer. And so, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, especially for your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.